1 John chapter 5. We've been making our way through this letter of 1 John on Sunday mornings, and uh, we're kind of in the home stretch now in the last chapter, chapter 5, and this morning we're going to cover the first five verses, and uh, we'll be dealing with some themes that we've dealt with before in 1 John. There's sort of repetitive character to this letter. He speaks to us again and again about the same kind of things, and I think that's instructive for us. You know, sometimes we get annoyed or maybe a little bit just bothered when somebody uh, repeats the same things to us or tells us the same thing just in a few different words. But I don't know about you, but I know that in my own life, it's what I need to hear. Sometimes I think I need some grand, brand new revelation from, you know, uh, almost some other planet to come to me, something brand new I've never heard before, but I really don't. Uh, I need to have the same old truths of God impressed on my heart again and again and again, maybe said in a little bit different way, but to, to keep them ever present before me. And, well, that's where we come here to 1 John chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. We read, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. Now, one of the things that John has mentioned a few times in this letter as we've made our way through it is this idea of being born of God. And I don't know, maybe that idea sounds strange in your ears that somebody can be born of God. But we all recognize that each one of us have an earthly birth, a human birth from human parents. We're all born of man or born of earth in that sense. But Jesus made it very plain, for example, when he taught in first, excuse me, in the Gospel of John chapter 3, one day a man named Nicodemus, a religious leader among the Jews, came to Jesus, and Jesus was explaining to him things about the kingdom of God, and Jesus told Nicodemus, he said, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. Well, Nicodemus said, how can that be? Oh, am I supposed to climb back into my mother's womb and be born all over again? What are you talking about? And Nicodemus was confusing the human earthly birth he had with the new birth that God wanted to give him in Jesus Christ. And I think God describes it as being born anew or born of God for very good reason. Because when a child is born, that child's whole existence is changed. A child isn't the same before it's born and after the born. Oh, some things about it are the same. You can just imagine the child there in the womb. The child is conscious. The child is aware. The child knows what's going on. They have a daily routine. You know, well, my mom's fast asleep. It's time for me to start kicking and moving around a lot and get her gone, get her used to the sleep-deprived state of motherhood. So let's get on the business here. And, you know, the child has a routine that it goes through. It has a life. It has an existence in the womb. But one day that completely changes. And might I say that the changes don't necessarily come easy, do we? I mean, it must be the worst day in a child's life, the day that it's born. It's fairly traumatic. But when it comes out into the world, it's born into a brand new world that it could never conceive of before, it could never even think of. And the world's new, and in some ways it's a strange world, but in other ways it's a beautiful, beautiful world. I mean, obviously that child had a sense of the mother's love and care before, but can you imagine how good it feels for a baby to be held in its mother's arms the first time? To have that sense of love and care and affection in a greater dimension than it ever knew them before when it was in the womb. What a change in the life of that baby. Well, in the same way, when somebody's born of God, there's something changed in their life. 
something wonderful, a new ability to understand and live and walk in the love of God that they never knew of before. And so the Bible repeats for us over and over again this idea of being born of God. Well, how do we become born of God? You know, is it if you, you know, climb up to the top of a tall mountain on your knees over broken glass, saying a bunch of prayers and, and doing all that, well, then you can be born of God. Or if you come to a place of sufficient sinless perfection, you know, maybe not 100% sinless perfection, just 98% sinless perfection, you come up to that place and, well, then you can be born of God. No! John tells us, look at it here in verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. It's not human achievement. It's not a, a program that you go through. It's a person that you trust in and rely on. You know, John has had a great emphasis throughout this letter and in recent weeks as we've been going through, he's had a great emphasis on love. We have to love one another. We've got to love God. We need to love one another. But you know, you never earn your salvation by loving God or by loving one another. That's not what makes you born of God. You're not born of God by love. You're born of God by faith, by trust in Jesus Christ. Then God puts a love in your life that you need to live out, doesn't he? Now, when John says here in verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, we need to understand what he means by that word believe. He doesn't mean a bare or a mere intellectual agreement. You know, we can agree with something, but it has no effect on our lives. I mean, you can teach me all kinds of truths about physics or this or that. And, you know, here I am, well, you know, I agree that the neutron and the proton and the electron do all that and this and that. Yes, I agree with that. What difference does it make in my life? Absolutely none. You can go around and play a board game like Trivial Pursuit, and they can ask you to name the cast members from Gilligan's Island. And you could probably do it now, couldn't you? Confess. You have that in your head. But it's useless knowledge. Who cares? The only thing it's good for is scoring a point in some board game sometime. Friends, the knowledge about who Jesus Christ is isn't like that, or it shouldn't be like that in your life. It's not just a fact that you store away in some irrelevant place in your mind. It's meant to affect your life. You're meant to put your trust in him, your reliance on him. When the Bible talks about us believing in Jesus, it's not just believing that he exists. Every demon in hell believes that he exists. It's that we trust in him, that we rely on him, that we cling to him. It's as if this chair right here, I could stand before you and say, well, I believe that that chair is a fine chair and that it'll work fine and everything. We can talk about it on a theoretical basis all day long, but it's a different thing altogether for me to go and actually sit in that chair, isn't it? And put my trust and my reliance upon that chair. Well, it's the same way with Jesus. Believing that he is the Christ means that I'm believing that he is Messiah. That's what the word Christ means, don't you know? You go through the Old Testament and you see the precious promises of the Messiah. When you come to the New Testament, that's what the name Christ means. It's the exact same meaning as the word Messiah. And I'm not just saying that Jesus is Messiah in a theoretical sense. Well, he's your Messiah and that he's your Messiah, that he's a Messiah. I'm saying that he's my Messiah. That's salvation. He's my Savior. Now, let me say an additional thing about this, and you may have never thought about this, but for some of you, it may have come up as an issue in your life at some time or another. John makes it plain here in verse 1 that we must believe that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, 
He's not just a Christ, or he just doesn't have the Christ spirit. He is the Christ. And the reason why I say that is there's sort of a new age sort of spirituality out there that says that Jesus isn't the Christ, but rather that Jesus had the Christ spirit. I don't know if you've ever run across it, but it's a kind of new age sort of way of thinking. And they say, well, Jesus had the Christ spirit. And so did Confucius, and so did Muhammad, and so did Buddha, and so did Shirley MacLaine, for that matter. (laughs) But that's not what the Bible teaches us. It's not that Jesus had the Christ spirit. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And we trust in him and we rely on him. Now, if you're born of God, if you put that kind of trust in Jesus, it's going to make a change in your life, just like the life of that baby is changed. And so look at the change of life that comes here in the end of verse 1. He says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot... Now, who is him who begot? That's God himself. He's the one who's born us. Everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. Can I just kind of put that in other words in case that sort of confused anybody? If you're born of God, if he gave you new birth, then you're going to love the other people who have the new birth. How's that? You'll love your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Did you know that that's the common ground of every believer in Jesus? It's not race. It's not class. It's not culture. It's not language. It's nothing except a common birth in Jesus Christ and the common lordship of Jesus Christ. I mean, I don't want you to turn your head and look around, but if you just consider all the people around you in this room, let's face it, you wouldn't be hanging around these people if it weren't for the common lordship you have in Jesus Christ, would you? I mean, really, honestly. We'd find a different niche. We'd find other people to hang around with. But none of those other things really seem to matter, does it? What matters is that we have a common Savior, common Lord, and that's a common ground that's bigger than anything else we could ever deal with. This tells us that to love all others in the family of God, to love everybody who's born of Him, it means that we don't limit our love to those of just our own denomination, our own group. We don't limit our love just to those who have our own social or financial status. We don't limit our love to just those of our own race or to our own political perspective or to our own exact theological persuasion. Friends, if any of those things mean more to us than the common salvation and the common lordship of Jesus Christ, then something's very wrong. We've got an election coming up here, and I don't know about you, but I plan on voting. I I believe that a Christian should vote, and should vote prayerfully and intelligently. But can I just say something about Christians and political involvement and political perspective? If you're a Christian, and if you feel more comfortable with somebody who shares your political viewpoints and who is not a Christian, than you do with somebody who is a Christian and who doesn't share your political viewpoints, something's wrong. Because your political viewpoints are more precious to you than the common lordship of Jesus Christ. That's more important to us, isn't it? It's more important to us than anything else. So God looks down from heaven and he says, Look, you're all born of me. You're all belonging in the same family. Get along. Parents, you know what it's like to say that to your kids, don't you? Isn't that one of the most exasperating things for a parent? When the children are fighting with each other. And they fight and they fight and sometimes they almost seem to hate one another and the parents get exasperated by this. 
Why are you treating each other like this? You're one family. You're the same team. Come on, we're all one family. Don't you hear God in heaven saying that to us sometimes? Of course he does. Well, being born of God means more than we love one another. He's going to go on and talk more on this theme, beginning at verse 2. He says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about it in those terms, but John's going to tell you how you can know that you love your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. You can know that you love them when you love God and obey his commandments. You see, just as our love for the people of God reflects our love for God, so our love for God is a demonstration of our love for one another. I don't know if that's kind of a confusing idea for you, but it just works all together. It's, it's one hand washing the other. You know, it's been said that the best thing that a father can do for his children is to love his wife and their mother. That gives a sense of peace and stability and, and permanence to the home that nothing else can really do. And in the same way, the first way for a child of God to love his brothers and sisters in the body of Christ is to love God in heaven. And if we love the child, then we're going to love the parent. It all works together. It like builds one upon the other. You see, because if a Christian doesn't really love God or keep God's commandments, then we're not going to be of much use in the body of Christ one for another. You see, when our love and obedience for God grows cold, we don't just harm ourselves. I'm harming you. You're harming me. It's as if the the church is like a ship that's sailing towards a destination and our own personal uh, hardness of heart towards God or lack of obedience to him, it's like a little anchor that every one of us throw over the ship. And pretty soon there's, you know, a hundred anchors in the water and we're like, well, the ship isn't going anywhere. Why not? The wind is blowing. It's pointed in the right direction. The captain's trying to sail it. Why isn't it going anywhere? Well, pull up the anchors. Let your heart love the Lord Jesus Christ and bring yourself into a place of obedience to him and you'll see that God uses that love one for another to to demonstrate a love towards him. Let me put it to you this way, folks. If you're not going to love and obey God for your own sake, then please do it for the sake of your brothers and sisters in Christ because it demonstrates a love towards them. Then he goes on to say in verse 3, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And, when, and his commandments are not burdensome. You know, so often when we read in this letter of 1 John, when we read a passage, you just know that echoing in John's mind and in his ears are something that Jesus said. And Jesus said in John fourteen fifteen, that's the gospel of John, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Let me say that again. If you love me, keep my commandments, Jesus said. Now look at verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Can't you see John just saying, I heard Jesus say something like this. Let me put it to you another way. If we love him, or this is the love of God, we will keep his commandments. Friends, a love for God is going to show itself in obedience. We can't go along all day long. Oh, I love the Lord. Oh, I love the Lord. Oh, I love the Lord. Well, what about this in your life and this and this and this? Well, yeah, I know, but oh, I love the Lord. John's going to say, you know, if you really love him, it's going to show in obedience. 
Sometimes we as Christians try to turn love for God into sort of a mushy emotional experience. Oh, everybody knows I love God because I came up to the altar and kneeled down and I cried a bucket full of tears. Yes, I love God. Well, God bless you, and I don't want to demean whatever emotional experience you had. Maybe God did a wonderful work in your life through that emotional experience. That's not to be denied. It's not to be put down. But that doesn't prove your love for God, does it? Your love for God will be demonstrated throughout your whole life, not just in an emotional experience. Now, at the end of verse 3, I read a little sentence there that I hope you aren't putting a question mark by or scratching out in your Bible. Because as I read it, some of you are going to say, yeah, I don't think so, David. Let me read it. Verse 3, and his commandments are not burdensome. And his commandments are not burdensome. Friends, not is in there. Now, some of us would say, wait a minute, David, I don't know. When I read the commandments of God, sometimes they seem pretty burdensome to me. What's going on here? How can John tell us that the commandments of God are not burdensome? Well, I'll tell you how. I would say that there are at least four ways in which the commandments of God are not burdensome. Number one, his commandments are not burdensome when we see how wise and good the commandments of God are. You know, God's commandments are gifts from him to show us the best and the most fulfilling life possible. It's not as if God looks down from heaven and says, well, I want to see whoever's having fun down on earth, and I'm going to make a commandment to get them to stop it right away. (laughs) Friends, that's not the idea at all. God's commandments are like the manufacturer's handbook where he tells us how to live and how to conduct our lives in the best way. It's not like God sees us as a bunch of trained poodles that he wants to make jump through a bunch of hoops just for the sake of jumping through the hoops. Every commandment has a purpose, and that purpose comes from the wise and loving heart of God. He tells us what to do because he knows how we work best. God's commandments aren't given to bind us or to pain us or because God is some cranky old man in heaven. And so his commandments are not burdensome. They're gifts. Secondly, I think we can say that his commandments are not burdensome because when we're born again, when we're born of God, we're given new hearts. You know, when you're born of God, you have a desire to serve him and to please him that you didn't have before. I'm not saying that it's complete. I'm not saying that that you never have a sinful inclination. We're going to struggle with the flesh until we're redeemed in glory. But there is a change, isn't there? There's a presence in your life, a desire to serve him, to please him that wasn't there before. And now, now you really want to please him. And so his commandments are not burdensome because he's changed our heart and we want to serve him more than we used to. A third way that his commandments are not burdensome is because they are not burdensome when we compare them to the religious rules that men make up. Friends, John is not trying to say that obedience is an easy thing. If that were so, then it would be easy for us to not sin. Does anybody here want to say that it's easy not to sin? Well, John knows it's easy. It's not easy to keep from sinning because he's already acknowledged that we all do sin. But John is thinking of the contrast that Jesus made between the religious requirements of the, of the religious leaders of his day and the simplicity of following after Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of people want to make following God a list of rules and regulations. 
That's how it was in Jesus' day. You know, in Jesus' day, there were sort of these super spiritual guys who went around, and everybody was in awe of how spiritual they were. They were so spiritual that, well, for example, the Bible said that you should give 10% of what you have to God. So when they grew their little uh, uh, herb gardens in the backyard, and they would count out the little seeds of, of dill or cumin to, to season their food with, they'd get, you know, the pile of seeds, and they'd say, okay, nine for me, one for God. Nine for me. And they'd give to God, you know, five or six little seeds because I got to give God 10% of everything. Friends, that's hardcore religious observance. That's keeping the rules and regulations. And you start carrying that sort of mentality out into every area of your life. And so I can't do this. I got to do this. And there's a big, long list of rules that keeps getting longer and bigger and bigger. Listen, compared to that, following Jesus Christ is not burdensome. The list of rules and regulations, that's burdensome. Jesus said that the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders put heavy burdens upon people. But in contrast, Jesus said of himself, listen, you've heard this one before. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Now when he says yoke, he doesn't mean Y-O-L-K, like the yoke of an egg. He's talking about the kind of yoke that you'd put on an oxen, that an oxen would have to pull. And Jesus said, yeah, there's something you have to pull. It's there, but my yoke is easy. And the burden I give you, it's light. It's not burdensome. It's a burden, but it's not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. You see, instead of the burdensome requirements to keep hundreds of little rules and regulations, Jesus just simply says to us, hey, love me, love my people, and you'll walk in obedience. How's that? That's not burdensome. And then finally, I would say the fourth way that his commandments are not burdensome is his commandments are not burdensome when we really love God. You know, when you really love somebody, you'll do things for them that may seem inconvenient to do for another person, but you're delighted to do it for them. You really love somebody, and you want to go out and buy them a special gift, and you have to go from store to store to store, then you finally find the place that has it, and you have to wait in line for about an hour to get through the check stand, but you're happy to do it. It's like, yeah, I'm buying something for somebody I love. I love them. I'm happy to do this. Now, if it was buying it for anybody else or for somebody you didn't really like that much, oh, you'd have such a bad attitude. You'd be complaining all the time. You'd give up halfway through. But when you love somebody, it seems little trouble to go through a lot of difficulty to help them or to please them. You enjoy doing it. Though if you had to do it for an enemy, you wouldn't like it at all. Remember in the book of Genesis, I love this story in the book of Genesis chapter 29, where Jacob was fleeing from his brother who said he was going to kill him. And Jacob goes to a faraway land and he meets a beautiful woman named Rachel that he wants to marry. And so he wants to marry Rachel, but in those days you had to give a dowry to the bride's father. It was sort of alimony in advance, the, 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 the dowry. And Jacob fled with just the clothes on his back. So what did he do? He went and the dad said, well, you know, what are you going to give me for a dowry? And he can't say, well, I'll give you a hundred head of cattle or I'll give you this gold or jewelry. All he has is his work. So the, the Rachel's father named Laban says, well, uh, Jacob, I'll tell you what, here's what you'll do. I'll give you my daughter if you'll work for me seven years. No pay. Now, guys, I know you love your wives, and I know you're devoted to them, but what if you went to go ask for her hand in marriage, and uh, her, uh, her dad said, well, fine, you can marry my daughter. Just work for me for seven years with no pay, and then I'll give you my daughter. 
we'd be saying, well, there's other fish in the sea after all. And, you know, uh, but that's not how it was for Jacob. Jacob loved Rachel. And you know what it says? Maybe you've heard this verse before. Genesis 29, 18. It says that the seven years of hard work that Jacob did to earn the right to marry Rachel, it says that those years seemed only a few days to him because of the love that he had for her. Isn't that marvelous? Seven years seeming like a few days because he loved her so much. Friends, love made that burden seem not so burdensome. See, so obeying God's commands does not seem a burden when we really love him. There's a proverb that says, love feels no loads. When we love somebody, the load isn't there. We're delighted to serve them. Well, his commandments are not burdensome, so we can walk after them, and that brings us to verses 4 and 5, where John says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, again, he's been talking over and over again about being born of God and what it means in our life. When we're born of God, we we have a love for other people. We want to walk after him. We have a changed heart that wants to love the Lord and keep his commandments. But whatever is born of God is also something that's going to overcome the world. That's a principle that's so simple yet so powerful that if we're born of God, we're going to overcome the world. The idea that anything that's born of God could be overcome by the world, well, that's totally foreign to John. How could that happen? It's born of God. The world isn't greater than God. So if you're born of God, you're going to overcome the world. But what's the key to that victory? Did you see it there in verse 4? And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What a beautiful circle God gives us. How are you born of God? By believing on Jesus Christ. What is the victory that overcomes the world? It's faith. It's believing on Jesus Christ. He repeats the thought over and over again because it's an abiding faith. It's an abiding trust in Jesus. We're not just talking about an initial come to the altar and get saved kind of faith. We're talking about a consistently abiding faith, a reliance and trust upon Jesus Christ. This tells us that we overcome primarily because of who we are in Jesus not because of what we do. You know, you can be trying to do a hundred things to please God, but if you don't keep your mind focused on who you are in Jesus and what he's done for you, you're going to get it all mixed up. You know, I think there's a beautiful example of this in in, uh, the book of Romans chapter 7, where in Romans chapter 7, Paul's a believer who's struggling with sin. And maybe you've been where Paul described himself being in Romans 7. He says, the good that I want to do, well, I don't do that. But the bad that I don't want to do, well, I find myself doing that. And he's tortured in this struggle for sin. And he finds himself falling again and again and again. Why? How? What's wrong, Paul? Why aren't you overcoming the world? Why aren't you having this victory? Well, it's very simple, really. If you take a look at Romans 7, it's almost so obvious that we miss it. You just follow through in Romans 7 and look at the section where Paul's describing this agonizing struggle he's going through and see how many times he refers to himself. It's over and over again. I, me, my, myself. He's not finding any victory because he's entirely self-focused. Oh, he wants to do what's right. 
But the victory isn't there because his faith isn't in Jesus Christ. No, his focus isn't there. His focus and his faith is really on himself. But as soon as he looks outside of himself and he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? I can't do it. Who's going to do it? He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And there he finds the victory. Friends, that's where you're going to find the victory to overcome the world. That's what he says there in verse 5. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's the key to our overcoming. It's our faith. It's our abiding relationship of trust and reliance on Jesus Christ. Friends, God wants us to be world overcomers in Jesus. Not to be overcome by the world, but to overcome it. Now let me conclude by taking you a couple passages of scriptures that I think speak so powerfully about this dynamic of overcoming. Turn, if you will, to Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. By the way, the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation as well, didn't he? He likes to talk about overcoming. And in Revelation chapter 12, that's to the right in your Bible of this letter of 1 John. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. We read about the legacy of some people who overcame Satan and all of his attacks. It says here, Revelation 12, 11, And they overcame him, how? Number one, by the blood of the Lamb. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb. Instead of looking to themselves and what they could do and what they could accomplish, they looked to what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross for them. Friends, that's far more important than anything that you can do for God. It's what he's done for you in Jesus Christ. You know, I'm very glad that this is the morning that we partake of communion together. And right after I'm done speaking here from the scriptures, we're going to come to the Lord's table together. And what an appropriate morning for us to do it. Friends, you're going to overcome by faith, not by looking to yourself, but by looking to what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for you. You're going to overcome by the blood of the Lamb. So that when Satan comes and accuses you and tells you what a weak Christian you are, what a miserable Christian you are, what a sinful person you are, you don't have to debate him. You say, you're right, Satan. In fact, I'm probably worse than you even think I am. I am a great sinner, but I have a greater Savior in Jesus Christ, and I come on the basis of the blood of Jesus. That's to overcome Satan. Well, that's not the only way. Look at verse 11 with me again of Revelation chapter 12. It says, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and secondly, and by the word of their testimony. Well, I think this speaks of two things. The word of their testimony probably has reference, first of all, to the word of God. And isn't that the foundation of our overcoming, knowing God's truth and having his word in it? But it's not just the word of God. It's also the word of their testimony. In other words, God has done something real in your life. And that's a testimony that you have before him. Do you have a, a testimony that says, God has done something in my life and I know it. I don't have to doubt it. I don't have to debate it. I know God has done something. That's how they overcame him, by the word of their testimony. And then finally, look at it in verse 11. And they overcame him, number one, by the blood of the lamb, number two, by the word of their testimony, and then thirdly, and they did not love their lives to the death. Friends, what can Satan do against somebody like that? What can Satan do against somebody who says, you know what, my own life isn't even precious to me. Live or die, I'm all in out for the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan just throws up his hands in hell and he goes, I can't do anything against that person. There's nothing I can do to get them to fall away, to be turned aside. What can Satan do against the person who says, listen, it doesn't matter if I stumble and fall, I'm going to pick myself up and keep walking after Jesus Christ. 
My, that kind of Christian gets Satan so discouraged. And I don't mind that at all. We can overcome him by not loving our own lives to the death, by having that kind of determination and willingness to follow Jesus Christ no matter what the cost. Well, let me take you to one final passage of Scripture, and you'll see how wonderful this is just briefly. And I'm sure this was on John's mind when he talked about overcoming in 1 John chapter 5. Uh, Turn back in your Bible to the Gospel of John, John chapter 16. In the Gospel of John chapter 16, again, also written by the Apostle John, we've read what he wrote in 1 John, we've read what he wrote in the book of Revelation. Now we read what he writes in the Gospel of John chapter 16. Verse 33, where Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. Again, isn't that the life of faith? You're not going to have peace in yourself. You don't have peace? Maybe you're looking to yourself. I wouldn't have any peace looking to myself. That's just depressing. But you look to Jesus Christ, that's peace. That in me you may have peace, and then he says, In the world, you will have tribulation. Friends, I hate to tell you, that's a promise from God. You think of the promises of God, and some of them are precious than others. But that's a promise of God, isn't it? You're going to have tribulation in this world. But then he goes on to say, this is glorious at the end of verse 33, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. He has. We can take courage, we can have strength in the fact that Jesus Christ has overcome the world. And because he's overcome the world, as we put our faith in him and put our lives in him, we overcome it as well. Friends, it's a great exchange. Our life is hidden in him and he puts his life in us. And so we can be world overcomers because Jesus Christ has overcome the world. And we come together this morning to the Lord's table to remember what Jesus has done in us, and you're going to do something strange, curious. You're going to take a a piece of bread that represents the body of Jesus Christ, and you're going to take a cup that represents his blood, and you know what you're going to do? You're going to put those things inside of yourself, aren't you? Because Jesus wants to be inside you. He wants to be living inside you. He wants his life to be inside you, and he wants your life to be inside him. That's what being born of him is all about, and how we can love one another, and how we can overcome the world. Let's just ask the Lord to prepare our hearts for that right now.